Since 1968, Locust Magazine has been providing science fiction and fantasy fans with the most comprehensive industry coverage around. Every month, you'll find news covering publishers, conferences, and awards from around the globe, reviews for books and short stories from notable critics, insightful interviews with top authors, as well as up-and-coming talent, extensive listings of books and magazines published in the U.S. and the U.K., bestseller lists, promotions, commentary, color photos, and more. And now Locust can be delivered to your inbox every month. Just log on to locustmag.com today to begin your 6, 12, or 24-month subscription, available as digital download, print, or both. If you love speculative fiction, be it fantasy, science fiction, or horror, Locust Magazine is the publication to keep you up to speed on the latest industry news each and every month. Hugo award-winning coverage, unlike any other magazine around. So what are you waiting for? Visit locustmag.com. That's locustmag.com. And subscribe today. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall, author of A Crown for Cold Silver and A Blade of Black Steel, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Today's guest is an author of five published novels and numerous short stories. His first three novels, The Sad Tale of the Brothers Grossbart, The Enterprise of Death, and The Folly of the World contain elements of fantasy, history, and horror. His latest series, The Crimson Empire, began with book one, A Crown for Cold Silver, published under the pseudonym Alex Marshall in 2015, and the sequel, A Blade of Black Steel, dropped just this past May. Published by Orbit Books, author, editor, folklore enthusiast, lover of the the outdoors and online at jessebullington.com. The Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on the program. Phil is geeking out already. He's fanboying out. Yay. <laughs> That's the sound of the fanboy. Uh, that was, a weird, that was a weird sound. Sorry about that. It was. It sounded like a goat that stuck in <laughs> fencing or something. Yeah, most of my uh, best fans are goats stuck in fencing. So. <laughs> But uh, no, man, we were glad, excited to have you um, on the show. You are the author of A Crown for Cold Silver and A Blade of Black Steel, two books that have kind of been tearing it up in the grim, dark subgenre. People are really excited about uh, these books. They're excited about your short story that's coming up in the Evil is a Matter of Perspective anthology that we talked about on the show a couple of months ago. That'll be coming out next year. You're author of numerous short stories and editor of... Uh, Cthulhu fiction and and such, and you've just done so many things and very talented, and we're excited to finally get you on the show and chat about all writerly things today. But first, I want to just just ask you, who the hell is Alex Marshall? Uh, Alex Marshall exists, unfortunately, now only on the covers of books. I uh, came up with that pen name in conjunction with my publisher when we launched The Crimson Empire because it did end up being kind of a very different project than the earlier novels that I put out. And I kind of like the idea of going whole hog like a pseudonym and inventing a whole personality and, you know, going down that rabbit hole uh, as a big Edward Gorey fan. I love the idea of having, you know, lots and lots of fun pen names and anagrams and things. However, uh, that was not to be. And in the interest of sort of, I guess, be more forthright about the fact that this was a pen name from the very beginning, they announced like, well, Alex Marshall is a pseudonym. So I didn't really get to invent a whole persona or anything, but 
I do feel that this project is remarkably different in enough ways that I understood why the suggestion to go with it kind of cropped up, and I was happy to run with it. So I think overall, I mean, it, it, it didn't hurt anything. I think it, it helped things along because the, the, the books are very successful. Reviews are, are very awesome. And, and yeah, so was it pretty much Orbit just saying we should probably tweak your pen name on this one to maybe get more sales? Or what do you think their philosophy was on the pen name? Um, I think the philosophy was that your first three books are really fucking weird. And <laughs> this one might be a little bit more commercial um, and I think the secondary world thing was a big part of it. I think they thought because my first three books are sort of niche and uh, they definitely have gotten a lot of really good critical acclaim. But I think a lot of people who picked them up expecting fantasy and getting, you know, something that was very <laughs> grim and dirty and medieval might then see, you know, this new Crimson Empire series and be like, oh, that's the guy with the book with all of the witches and the undead sex, and maybe we'll pass on that. So it was it was definitely a little bit by committee, I think, like, you know, marketing strategy. And I actually uh, am working on a young adult project, so I was kind of already assuming that I'd have to go up with a pen name at some point. Because mm -hmm. for the same reason, like if you're going to try to break into like uh, mid grade, you don't necessarily want parents to be like, oh, so he also, yeah, wrote, wrote this book with all the fisting. So you kind of had to <laughs> do something a little different. If you had the choice to to keep Alex Marshall as a separate persona, would how would you have presented him differently than your real self? Would you have gone to conventions and punched people or <laughs> shit on people's porches or something? <laughs> that would have been pretty, uh, you know, I do that already, though, under my own name. <laughs> oh, okay. That's the thing with branding. I don't want to, you know, kind of cover the right. same territory twice. Uh, I don't, you know, I had all these dreams of, like, writing shitty reviews for Alex Marshall as Jesse <laughs> Bullington and then getting into, like, fights, you know, throw people off the trail. But... Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, go the sort of master of disguise route, get a lot of, you know, wigs and bald caps and things. So. so if you could, give us the elevator pitch for maybe the Crimson Empire series and maybe what formulated this new world uh, that you've manifested in A Crown for Cold Silver and A Blade of Black Steel. It wasn't a very good elevator pitch, but, uh, <laughs> but it worked. I was basically like, OK, so imagine a fantasy world version of the film The Expendables, but that's not shitty. It's going to be awesome. It's <laughs> a bunch of badasses of various sort of archetypal modes getting the band back together, basically. And I'm really happy that the book came together the way it did. It actually started out initially going to be kind of a very different project. I kind of, when I started writing, it was going to be more of a standalone project. And so it's going to be kind of a lot tighter in terms of three-act structure, and big finish but of course in the course of writing it it just kind of grew and grew and grew and i realized there's no way in hell i could wrap it up that quickly so and we're slated for three books right now yeah and i think for the core trilogy that'll work i i really like narratives that kind of you know whether or not you're working in something like secondary world or historical fiction or science fiction i am drawn i think first and foremost to characters over plots and often i'm interested in like where characters lives would be after the major plot of you know something i think a crown for cold silver the sort of impetus for that was wouldn't it be neat to kind of pick up a story after everyone has gotten you know too old and retired and i mean it's obviously not the most one in a billion brilliant diamond of an idea obviously we're drawn to stories about you know people coming out of retirement for one last job that's like a great setup so yeah 
Yeah, I love the uh, the five villains because they're viewed as these like hor- horrific, uh, terrible people, and then when you kind of get to know them throughout the story, you know, some of them aren't. You know, they're not so bad actually. <laughs> People you want to hang out with, have a beer and uh, have a little chat. Maybe the the only one would be uh, uh, Horror Trap. I don't think I'd want to hang out with him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it takes all kinds. We all contain multitudes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, again, I'm drawn to flawed characters. Those are the only people that I'm really, you know, write what you know. And I'm definitely one of them. So I actually had this idea to have the first book be the first book and then the second book be... 25 years earlier and B stuff went in there again, again, like, but yeah, fortunately my editors were like, I would probably not actually go down very well. <laughs> he just kind of left the main plot hanging for a few years to go until like, you know, backstory, but maybe someday. Yeah. I really, I really like the, uh, the world building. Also the characters are, you know, a big part of the story that make it really pop out for me anyway. But the world building is is really interesting. Uh, you even include a Korean kind of country that's that's really interesting. And usually, when people include Asian culture, it's it tends to be Chinese or Japanese. What motivated you to use Korean specific kind of background to that particular country? Well, when I was a teenager, I had this really crazy unexpected uh, opportunity and I went to not to Korea but to Nepal and I went to Nepal for about a month when I was 17 and had like this you know as you would expect at that age life-changing experience and in fact uh, you know well the Immaculate Isles are obviously the Korean influenced uh, culture on the star, but Urukar, which is the south between the Ranaputri Dominions and the Immaculate Isles, is very heavily based on my experiences in Nepal, uh, except for the cannibalism. Uh, <laughs> on that trip to Nepal, I had a 12-hour layover in Seoul, South Korea. My dad happened to have known this guy, was friends with this guy who was a former policeman in Seoul, who gave him this map that he then passed on to me because to my extreme excitement, my dad, who was not cool with me, like partying or anything like that, came to me before this trip and was like, okay, you're going to have an amazing experience. Here's this map. You've got a 12 hour layover, go and explore this city. And he just kind of like let slip something about like, yeah, the drinking age there is like 16 or something. So I went into Seoul during this 12 hour layover and found a bar when I was 17, which was like a huge novelty and, you know, had my first legal beer and stuff. But the rub was that with the time zones and the red eye flights, I ended up getting into Seoul at like four in the morning. <laughs> and so I took this subway into the city and everything was completely quiet and just misty. And it was this amazing like ghost city. And then, you know, at like five, five thirty six, obviously like floods of people came pouring through everywhere. And, and then eventually I found a bar that opened at like seven in the morning and I watched Ben Hur dubbed into Korea and like sipping a beer <laughs> and not really wanting it, but being 17 and having the opportunity. So I kind of had to. And from that point on, I, it was kind of on my radar a little bit. And as a huge movie buff, a little later in life, when I started frequenting independent video stores back when those were still a thing in the before time, the long, long ago. Mm-hmm. And I kind of discovered the wealth of Korean cinema that's out there. The first one I think that really hit me was 301, 302, which is 
of, I thought at the time, again, I don't know if I would still agree with that assessment because I'm maybe a little less weird now, but at the time I thought it was a very great dark comedy of somewhat, you know, I'm not going to give the spoiler away, but it's about these two women who are trying to get the same apartment and ends up going to some really, really unexpected dark places. So from that point on, I kind of took an interest and since that time have been devouring a lot of Korean cinema. Uh, Park Chan-wook and Kim Ji-woo and Bong Joon-ho, Kim Ji-duk, all these really great Korean filmmakers are doing work that I think what really works for me is it has this really unique, dark, dark sense of humor. And it's, you know, not to generalize too much about the culture of an entire nation through a handful of their directors, but I think at least the kind of contemporary wave of my favorite Korean directors have some commonalities. Like Bong Joon-ho did The Host, the big monster movie, that's maybe one of his bigger ones. And I know a lot of people were crazy about it, but it kind of typifies to me this wonderful willingness to kind of mix genres instead of like, oh, is it a horror movie? Is it a thriller? Is it sci-fi? Instead, sort of like, well, it's kind of a family drama, but it's also this really, really dark comedy. But then we also have this giant monster. So I think getting all the way back around to your question eventually, I, uh, I had this initial sort of experience that, you know, made me curious about a culture. Then as I got a little bit older, I found the most obvious gateway to people in the West probably for Korean culture, which is Korean cinema. And, uh, you know, that of course led to things like reading actual folklore and taking an interest in stuff beyond just the sort of superficial nature of film. Because you're watching film, you're like, okay, what what is this? What's going on here? I have no idea culturally why this is a thing. And then you start going down rabbit holes. Next thing you know, you are appreciating something that, you know, unfortunately isn't on a lot of people's radar. So Yeah, like uh, Snowpiercer was a is Snowpiercer the name of it? Am I fucking it up? No, no, uh, I think that's Yeah, I always call it Snowpincher. Uh, that's not the title, <laughs> but I always call it that. <laughs> Yeah, that was Bong Joon Ho's uh, English language debut. That's kind of a good introduction for people who want to get the aesthetic of Korean film. That's kind of it is kind of weird and dark and it has moments that are very surprising and you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, the short answer is uh, the Immaculate Isles, which has this sort of uh, Korean influence. And again, as a history nerd, for me, I when as soon as I started putting this world together, I was thinking, well, I don't want it to just be Western European fantasy. Like, I think that, that's obviously cool, and uh, that's inspired a lot of the stuff that I grew up reading. But I want to have some other cultures kind of all mashing against one another. Because to me, as a historian, that's when things get really interesting, when you've got these sort of cultures clashing with one another and influencing one another, and you've got this back and forth. So I uh, have a degree in history, and I did study Korean history a bit back in college. And so this was, it wasn't just like, you know, oh, I love Korean, like, violent revenge movies, though I do. Um, <laughs> it's not just Korean Dongbok, like, clothing is badass, good as it is. But, there, I, you know, the Joseon era, which is pretty long. I mean, it's not, you know, something like, you know, the Renaissance or the Enlightenment, which we put in quite a small box. But the Joseon era, which covered five or six hundred years off the top of my head, it's early, uh, <laughs> encapsulated a lot of really interesting phenomenon, events, and... I just wanted to sort of play with that in a fantasy setting because it wasn't something I'd seen before, at least in my own pretty narrow view. Darkness seems to be a kind of reoccurring theme, of course, with all of your titles under Jesse Bullington and under Alex Marshall. What's your feeling on kind of dark subject matter in fantasy fiction? Do you think there's any maybe places that are too dark to go into? 
that's a good question. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, the guiding principle of art needs to be absolute freedom to go anywhere, but that's not necessarily to say that there's, <laughs> that I necessarily want to go anywhere or that right. I'm going to appreciate things that go to certain places. I think is, I guess it's funny because I've sort of evolved on this when I was younger and was super, super into horror. And, you know, in high school, I was a total whorehound in terms of like movies and stuff. And the more extreme, the better. And the older I get, I've kind of mellowed, I guess, to a certain extent, because stuff that's just shocking for the sake of shock value has kind of lost its appeal. And I think that probably comes from just being jaded, the internet and ridiculous movies and slight desensitization. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'll be, it says a lot that, uh, you know, nowadays I'll be watching something and it's, you know, human centipede too. And all I'm thinking is like, <laughs> you know, this is, this isn't that bad. Like I actually, you know, <clears throat> I've seen the whole trilogy. So what does that say about me? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely some places that I don't think I'd necessarily want to go just because again, you've got that question of, all art is informed by the real world. Like there's no art that isn't political in some way. Nothing we write comes from a vacuum. It's all coming from real world impulses. And so, or inspirations rather. And as long as I think you're aware that everything you're writing is, has this real world antecedent and you're treating the material with the sincerity that it deserves. I mean, I, there's a lot of violence in my work and sometimes that violence is comedic, but it's not ever done lightly and it's never done without knowing the back of my head, the, the real world consequences of violence. I don't know. It's interesting because obviously we romanticize violence to a certain extent or at least enjoy its uh, cinematic or literary representation much more than we would ever want to see in our real world <laughs> lives, right? It's that sort of Robert E. Howard notion of, uh, you know, civilization breeds a sort of longing for wildness and violence, but no one gives into it. And you have people who, the most corrupt people are writer in, in a free society where you can't just deck each other when someone steps out of line, which I don't necessarily agree with Conan's philosophy uh, all the time. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, again, like a lot of the stuff I read is dark. A lot of music I listen to is dark. And I think that the world is very dark and it's sort of incumbent on artists to shine a light on that versus shying away from it. I don't think anything good comes from, again, just glamorizing violence and writing these sort of like bloodless descriptions of it oh, and writing things, you know, beyond even the, the violence, just like the content of a work. I, you know, it's something that I've seen over and over again is people criticize my work because they say, you know, there's unlikable characters or they don't know who the good guy is or it's, you know, too morally ambiguous. But I think we live in a very morally ambiguous world. And it's sort of at least my responsibility to myself to make sure that I'm representing that accurately instead of using writing as like a political agenda or to write merely escapist stuff. I mean, escape has a great role to play in fantasy and fiction because it does give us this outlet and it does present, you know, worlds where we can solve our problems with swords. That's really appealing in theory until of course someone is trying to solve the problem of you with a sword. It's not so good. <laughs> One thing I noticed that you excel at particularly well is combining the dark comedy with some of the more violent situations. Um, I love the idea of these rich fops going hunting <laughs> and uh, thinking they're going to, like, kick ass. And, uh, okay, possible spoiler. Spoiler! Anyway, <laughs> they kick ass a little bit. 
<laughs> I would say. <laughs> so um, I think one one way that you particularly do well with the dark subject matter is you you make light of it in in some terms. Do you think that helps to deal with the darker subject matter to to kind of approach it in a way where it's not darkly serious. It's kind of kind of fun darkness, I would say. <laughs> yeah, no. And I guess that raises the question, right? Because I don't know, I'm not good with labels in the first place. Obviously, a lot of what I write and a lot of what I read would get classified as grimdark. But grim is not necessarily a word I'd apply to most of my own writing. And maybe that comes from, you know, reading too much like Kurt Vonnegut when I was a kid or something. Or even Cormac McCarthy. I don't know. I really like Cormac McCarthy's work. And I think there's humor there. You don't necessarily see people talking about all the time. You know, whether it's uh, No Country for Old Men or The Road, the sort of, you know, better known due to the cinematic adaptations. Or Blood Meridian and uh, Outer Dark, his other work. It's very literary. It's very violent. And it is subject matter wise, incredibly grim, but there are these moments of just, to me at least, profound hilarity. And I, finding his work and, you know, Vonnegut's again, like Vonnegut writes these incredibly, you wouldn't say flippant, but okay. So Kurt Vonnegut, as I mentioned, is a big inspiration with his treating of something like the firebombing of Dresden and the war in general. It's completely sincere and it's completely authentic, but that's not to say that it's free of humor. On the contrary, what makes his writing so human and so relatable, I think, is that he lets us laugh at the absurdity of being alive. And really, I think that's always been my attitude. You're not laughing at them, or you're laughing with them, which I think is one of the only ways that we can really stay sane in this world, is you look at how awful things are. And if you don't let yourself find some catharsis and release through the abject absurdity of being alive and the sort of paradoxes we see, you're going to have a really, really bad time of it. <laughs> so I definitely, in my work, use humor, but it's never intended to dismiss or, you know, make the work seem like I'm not taking the subject matter seriously. I'm always aware of the stakes when I'm writing, but I also am aware that in this world, if you take everything completely seriously, you're just... I don't know. There's a reason I think that like humor and horror kind of overlap to the extent that they do. It's all about mm -hmm. responses to the unexpected. And of all the genres out there, I think, you know, uh, his Lon Chaney Jr. talks about the uh, clown at midnight principle where a clown, you know, debatably at this age, but a clown in the middle of the day in the circus is pretty funny. But that same clown in your front yard at midnight is not. So context is everything. Uh, I think uh, some people may find a clown pretty fucking terrifying no matter what, <laughs> what situation it's in. But I, this is the thing I think Grimdark is eventually going to move towards. And I'm not I'm not saying I hope more people copy you because because <laughs> I like you I like your style uh, very much. But I think the natural evolution of Grimdark as a genre, it almost has to get away from the grim, I feel. I think a lot of people that like Grimdark have dark senses of humor. And they enjoy not going insane, like you said. Um, if I just looked at Facebook all day and got pissed off at every single thing I saw, what's the point of living or doing anything and you get into this existential crisis and then <laughs> suddenly you're screaming into the void or whatever. But I like this approach that you have. You're not, like you said, it's, it's more of a satirical approach, I think, in some regards of of 
not treating violence flippantly, but I mean, there are several instances that are pretty funny where violence is concerned in your in your first book, I think, especially concerning foppish people. <laughs> yeah, no, in that sequence, I kind of let the characters take narratives to a certain place. And that wasn't like, you know, this big scene that I had planned from the very beginning. It was something that sort of evolved. And that's still one of my favorite scenes that I wrote in the book because, well, I, again, like without giving too much away, like getting into the characters' heads and kind of envisioning this sort of tragedy unfolding. It was, you know, it's the sort of like fantasy equivalent, right, of a Florida Man newspaper article where you're just like, you see that headline and you're like, what the fuck happened here? <laughs> and that's, but that's real life, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, and I guess that's the thing is that sometimes people might mistake the humor in my work for a sign that uh, I don't, I'm not taking the assignment seriously or like I don't respect the material and all this sort of thing. And then nothing could be farther from the truth. It's just that obviously humor is subjective. My sense of humor is very particular, but it's not as though, you know, I think the sort of modern uh, linchpins of the genre are humorless, like George R. R. Martin or Joe Abercrombie obviously have moments of like great, yeah. great humor. Abercrombie especially, like I'm reading his uh, Sharp Ends short stories right now. And so many of those, you know, sometimes it's almost like a shaggy dog story where he's working up to this punchline. And <laughs> again, I, humor is relative. And so I think that maybe that's one of the things is that if, if your sense of humor doesn't line up with someone else's, often you'll just be confused <laughs> and unhappy. And you also have a short story coming up in the uh, Evil is a Matter of Perspective anthology that we talked about on the show. Could you maybe give us a little preview of what you have in store for readers with that contribution? Yeah, it was tough, right? Because uh, when Adrian brought me on board, and it seems like a really, really cool project, I'm really happy to working with everyone. Uh, he gave me the premise, and it was like, write a story from the perspective of one of your villains with a crown for cold silver. You know, the, the protagonists are the five villains. And so <laughs> I wanted to do something different. You know, it didn't, it seemed like it would be sort of, again, missing an opportunity to do something because the anthology is obviously doing something a little different to just, okay, well, I'll just write the perspective from, you know, that's one of the perils, right, when you're writing mostly Shades of Grey. So I had to really scratch my head and think, like, well, who's who is really a villain in the context of the narrative as it's being presented? And so what I decided to do was run with a character whose perspective, first of all, we hadn't really seen before, and who is a very villainous character, and that is the Black Pope, Yehoma uh, Third, huh. who <laughs> at this point in the text would seem, especially after the second book, irredeemable and Obviously, like, evil is a matter of perspective, and so is good. And so it seemed like a really neat opportunity to present this sort of other side. It's not necessarily going to be like uh, an apologia, but it's definitely going to be inside the head of someone who we haven't really seen before, who has a very, very different agenda and a very, very different worldview than the rest of the cast. And you've written a shit ton of short stories, too, so I'm sure this contribution will be a fine addition to the anthology once it gets released. I hope so. It's definitely, it was another like kind of head scratcher, right? Because I wanted to make sure that I was writing, I wasn't just basically like writing a, you know, a deleted scene from the book or, you know, right. Crown for Cold Silver 2.5. I wanted to write something that would be a standalone. So even if you have no context for this world or this character, it's still going to hopefully be uh, an interesting, good read and uh, you won't regret the time you spent on it. Do you think it's okay to sometimes just have a straight up evil character that's just, I think in some ways the necromancer from Inter the Enterprise of Death is pretty <laughs> straight up evil. <laughs> well, you just say that because you're a breather, man. If you were undead, you'd see things from a very different perspective. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, he's definitely a piece of shit. I mean, that's, <laughs> I love pieces of shit. I love them. And yeah, I absolutely think that 
there's a place for like the irredeemable villain. And this is not, like I said, going to be a sort of story where you're like, well, now I understand that, you know, black Pope sacrificing tens of thousands of people. That's pretty cool. Like <laughs> it's not going to be that. Cause yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? I don't believe in evil as a sort of, uh, external force, but it's hard to look around the world and see certain people and, you know, be like, well, we, we just got to take things in perspective. You know, everyone's a hero of their own story. It's like, no, some people are just pieces of shit and that's <laughs> not going to change. And again, as someone who grew up loving horror and loving fantasy and just genre in general, like I love a good villain and that a good villain doesn't always mean a redeemable villain. Like Vincent Price is one of my favorite actors. He's amazing. He's an amazing human being. I got to meet his daughter a few years ago and he's just one of my absolute heroes. And I still remember as a kid, you know, I loved seeing him as a villain because of how campy and over the top, you know, Dr. Fives is like killing people according to the biblical plagues and this like, you know, proto saw insanity. And I just had so much fun watching him. And then I watched one that he made called, uh, Witchfinder General is also as a conqueror worm, and he's playing Matthew Hopkins, the you know real world mm. witch hunter. And as a kid, I would put it on expecting this, like, oh, it's gonna be another fun, like Uncle Vincent's gonna show me a good time. And it's dark <laughs> as fuck. It is. It, he is not a fun redeemable character. It's just it's about this corrupt witch hunter exploiting women for sex and torturing his enemies and political corruption. And I, by the end of the movie, I fucking hated him. I was just like, God damn it. And but of course, that's the sign of you know a good performance and a good narrative. That's show you something you haven't seen before. Yeah, interesting story. I actually went to Salem and went to the Salem Witch Museum there, and I bought a book about the witch hunters, and uh, yeah, they're fuck- they were fucked up people. Yeah. Like, <laughs> pretty, un- pretty irredeemable, I think. And then for the Crimson Empire series, uh, did you say it was a quadrilogy or is it a trilogy? What's your plans overall for this series? It is going to be a trilogy, but... Again, like I like narratives that kind of start at the point where a lot of other stories might have ended. <laughs> and by the same token, like I am not one for, you know, life doesn't follow a three-act structure. And mm-hmm. a big climax is obviously great. But when we look back on our lives, it's not as though, you know, there is ever a happily ever after. And that was one of the things that, you know, a lesson I learned from Tolkien, right, that you know, the harrowing of the Shire at the end of The Return of the King, which didn't make it into the film version, which is a shame. I understand they didn't have time, but to me, that's one of the really great things about those books is they just kind of showed the cost of things and showed that, like, there is this kind of never-ending struggle. Not all battles are going to be on this grand scale, but at the end of every conflict, there's going to be survivors, and there are going to be people who try to rebuild their lives, and in time, this is going to become, uh, you know, history or legend, but it's not going to be the end of the story for everyone. So this will be a trilogy, and there will be a lot of resolution, <laughs> but it's not ever going to be, I think, a clean, okay, well, that's the end of it. There's nothing left to tell in this world. I think I'll definitely be returning to the Alex Marshall leader hosen, putting them back on, you know, one strap <laughs> at a time and getting back into it. You snap, snap. You should... <laughs> You should take different author photos for Al- wear Lederhosen for Alex Marshall. <laughs> That's the only difference. Like very yeah. subtle, subtle. Yeah, I like that. And I presume you're going to continue publishing under Jesse Bullington as well? Yeah, I mean, fuck, I, that's not entirely up to me, but that's, okay. <laughs> you know, as long as editors buy my stuff, I, uh, yeah, I definitely am going to kind of keep the stream separate, writing historical and who knows what else under my own name, and then keeping mm-hmm. Alex Marshall as sort of, you know, the banner for the Crimson Empire. 
you mentioned uh, the, your fascination with Korean culture. Is there any is there any historical period that you'd like to tackle in future Jesse Bullington work? You've kind of tackled medieval Europe and the uh, Spanish Inquisition. Uh, is there any other historical period you would like to fuck up a little bit? Yeah, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, one of the things about history is I didn't you know set out to become a historian. I actually was uh, in college and I was getting a English degree and I just I took like five and a half years to get like a four years bachelor's because I just take any class that sounded interesting. I had a, you know, I was staying at home and I got in-state scholarship to save money. And so I was basically on a free ride and would just take whatever. And eventually when they forced me like kicking and screaming to declare a major, I was like, well, I guess I'll do English lit because, you know, it's obviously where my classes were. It turns out that I had actually taken more history classes. Uh, so I ended up double majoring. And at that point, I'd done all the work. But in terms of actual historical places that I want to dip my toe into, I'm sure I'll do like an American Western at some point. Like Mm. I'm a big fan of the genre. And I actually I had this grand scheme for a while that now seems uh, slightly less tenable since about 10 years have passed since I started the sad tale of the Brothers Grossbart, which, uh, yeah, set in the 14th century right after the Black Plague, where I had this idea of doing. 10 novels, each one set in a different century between, you know, 1100 and 2100. And, uh, you know, with the gross parts about the 14th century down, and then I jumped forward a couple hundred years to the early 16th century for the Enterprise of Death, and then kind of came back in the middle. So I've got this, you know, three centuries knocked out right in the middle between Folly of the World and the other one. So I, I had these ambitions of like, yeah, I'll just write a completely different novel set in each century in different parts of the world. And uh, yeah, now the older they, again, I'm like, where am I ever going to find the time for that? But the, the problem is time. The problem is an inspiration. I think that if I put my mind to it, I could probably write set anywhere in any sort of historical world because all kinds of stuff are fascinating when you really get into it. It's not just the big battles and it's not necessarily these major in you know, the Black Death was obviously this huge, incredible catalyst for change, but it's hardly the only interesting thing in the 14th century. Uh, there's this wonderful book called A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman, which I would highly recommend to anyone who likes fantasy because it's her history of the 14th century. And it's as compelling and wonderful and crazy and at times hilarious as anything you'd read from George R. R. Martin. It's really well written. So there's a lot out there, and I'm excited to tackle a lot, but I don't really have anything off the top of my head. You talked about uh, Blood Meridian. I mean, I think you could do some similar <laughs> awesome shit with the, the the American West, for sure. I think uh, spaghetti westerns were one of my favorite things growing up, for, for whatever reason. As a kid, I, li- I just liked seeing Clint Eastwood squint at people and <laughs> beat, beat the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah, good piece of hickory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh, Kim Ji Woon, I think, did The Good, the Bad, and the Weird, which is this Korean tribute to spaghetti westerns that's really, really dope. I mean, it's completely over the top, but it is set in Manchuria and is really, really loving Sergio Leone's sort of campy western. You recently said on Facebook, I, I noticed that you're pretty hyped for a new Phantasm film. What is it about Phantasm that you really, you really enjoyed? The tall man or the ball? The ball is back? Yeah, all of the above. I, that is my bread and butter. And the, the thing is, Don Coscarelli, who uh, did that, 
I'm actually going tonight to see this 4K restoration of the original Phantasm on the big screen. And it's going to be so crazy. But what's really crazy is after the movie, J.J. Abrams, I believe, is interviewing Don Coscarelli and a bunch of the cast at May Fantasy Fest, some big film festival. And they're going to be live streaming the Q&A after showing the movie. So it's going to be a, a neat experience. And the thing about Don Cost really, right, is more recently he's done John Dies at the End and Bubba Hotep, which I really enjoy both of those movies. But, you know, flashback to my childhood, he did Phantasm and he did Beastmaster. So, like, <laughs> no Phantasm and no Beastmaster, and I don't know what I'd be writing today. Like, yeah, there's so much there that I love and always love. And I think what it is about Phantasm that really still holds the imagination is, I mean, it's not like the glossiest of, you know, the late 70s horror but it it definitely has a sort of purity of vision it's definitely a movie made and i think that is borne out too in the fact that cost really didn't just pass the franchise off you know like uh robert england didn't really do anything on the neck any of the other nightmares for years and john carpenter kind of played with halloween 2 and moved on and sean cunningham didn't really do anything with the other friday the 13th i don't think but don cost really did all four of the original phantasm movies you know periods of decades working with the same cast and i think that shows a sort of uh you know a certain passion for a project that comes through even when you've got a shoestring budget and it's really great filmmaking of the sort that i don't think has gone away entirely but it's kind of harder to find nowadays just because there's so much coming out that it's kind of hard to find these gems that are you know made for not much money and are full of passion and heart and a commitment to just being really weird. I think that's one of the things I love about Phantasm. I love it when they don't explain everything. And Phantasm, the more you watch them, you're just like, this just keeps getting weirder and weirder. <laughs> By the end of it, like the series, it's like, okay, so what? what's happening? Like all of America is under the sway of this weird undead undertaker that falls. I don't understand. Reggie's got like a triple barreled shotgun. That's pretty cool. So trailer looks pretty intense. I didn't expect the the story to go where it's going, but it looks pretty damn impressive. You were in The Witcher 3? <laughs> did, I, did I read that? Yeah, that- well, I, yeah. So I didn't actually do any, like, voice act or anything like that. What, what had happened was I have friends in the game industry, uh, a couple of people who work on different stuff, and so before the game even dropped, this buddy of mine sent me a... I don't, I don't remember if it was YouTube or if it was Vimeo or it was some little video, though, and he was like, hey, check this out. And it was a side quest from The Witcher 3 called The Sad Tale of the Grossbart Brothers. And <laughs> the unfortunately, there is no, um, there's not a cinematic of the brothers themselves. It's just you getting the assignment. But uh, yeah, Geralt like, has to go and hunt down and kill the three Grossbarts. And in the novel, there are, of course, only two Grossbarts. They're twins, Manfred and Hegel. But in The Witcher 3, there's a third Grossbart named Jesse Grossbart. So that's, that is my cameo, is I am uh, an AI bad guy that you hacked to death in a cave. Sweet. This is as big as it gets after the fall <laughs> downhill. You've reached the top. You've made it. Once you've got hacked in a cave, you know, that's the, <laughs> that's the top. Yeah, and I, when I, the funny thing is when I told my agent about this, she was like, wait, they made a video game based on your book without your permission? I'm like, no, no, no. So I explained <laughs> to my like agent about like Easter eggs. and like, no, this is good. This is really cool. So. As far as gaming, uh, are you a big gamer yourself? Do you Did you kill yourself in The Witcher, <laughs> Witcher 3? You know, the sad thing is it came out and I don't have a PS4 yet. And so <laughs> I haven't got to play it. I've... Uh, I've watched the the video and some friends have told me about it, but uh, I've still I'm still in the last generation. I don't have as much time for video games as I used to, unfortunately. Between everything else going on, it's 
I, maybe it's because my taste in video games lead to time sinks. Like I really love the Dark Souls, Demon Souls games, but mm. they are just they're not like fun video games <laughs> like i just i play them for like three hours and i'm like not as far as i was at the beginning and it's just like but i love them I mean, the atmosphere is great uh, i think they, i read that they're gonna do like another um red dead game right like red dead redemption red dead revolver i really like those oh, cool. so yeah. if they drop another sandbox western game i'll probably pick it up and i'm sure eventually i'll make the jump to ps4 and get to try the witcher and uh, all that good stuff are you full-time writer now or do you got a different side job? Are you still the video store or what's Yeah, no, I'm yeah. I've been full-time since I think 2009 and occasionally I'll pick up like a little bit of freelance work here or there. This has been it. And it you know, I'm not riding too high on the hog. I definitely have had day jobs that paid more than being a writer and without all the hustle, but on the other hand, it's you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very very lucky and it's literally entirely courtesy of fans, people who have picked up my books. I'm not even fans, but you know, people who have bought it. There are plenty of people who have bought my books who hated them and uh, <laughs> just forgot to keep the receipt. So thank you guys as well. Right. <laughs> haters. Yeah. <laughs> thank you to all the haters. Yeah. Well. But I honestly, like I just printed off a resume not too long ago for this really cool local video store. And I'm going to drop it off because I just, I miss being a video jockey. It's kind of a hard job to find these days. But I'd be happy just picking up a couple of shifts a week. And I just love that environment. I feel like the video store, when I worked at at least, and I've had this experience at other ones, is um, sort of a rarity where it's this place that people go to to just talk shit about movies with random strangers. Like, you don't see that at the movie theater, right? At the movie theater, maybe like people will like chat a little bit before or after the movie, but you're not usually hanging out talking to strangers about stuff. Whereas we'd have people come in the video store, hang out for an hour and not rent anything, just kind of browse around and get to talking. And I, I don't know, I miss that environment. So it wouldn't be too surprising if at some point in the future, I, you know, if I hit a really big, maybe I'll open my own video store, bar, movie theater combo. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, I'm freelance. So That's awesome that uh, I think about recently, uh, I went back to America. I live in Japan now, but I went back to America for a few weeks and kind of just expected to sit there and do nothing. Do the usual, like, hey, I'm, I'm home, and oh, cool, and okay, we don't fucking care anymore. <laughs> that usual thing. But uh, there's a local gaming store uh, that's nearby, and it's really was really cool to just sit and play board games with people and like chat about Dungeons and Dragons, which I haven't done in years. And I even mentioned this recently, like being a geek in public is okay now, where... <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend that would talk to me about Dungeons and Dragons for the weekend. He's like, oh, yeah, this weekend uh, I'm going to get my Frost brand and we're going to go after that that lich. And I'm like, dude, dude, shut the fuck up. We're in, we're in Spanish class. <laughs> like people are going to think we're weird. <laughs> But I love that idea that, you know, you can hang out with other people that love the same thing and they're passionate about it. And obviously, the Internet's a great place to meet people like that as well. And Rob, would we like to shift over to the fun game, the fun, fun game? Yeah, I think this is more than appropriate time to to roll one up with Jesse <laughs> Bullington slash Alex Marshall. We do not. Is, we do not approve of rolling up. <laughs> We're talking about not talking. up a character. Yeah. Yes. So you're keeping it what, fun. That's right. What was your chosen poison when you play tabletop games? Were you Dungeon Dragons guy or some something different? 
Yeah, we did all kinds of stuff. Uh, definitely cut my teeth on D&D like most people. Um, in high school, though, I got really into Warhammer fantasy role play, and that was sort of where I spent most of my time. Uh, mm. And I've come back around. I've played like a little bit of Pathfinder. Uh, I haven't picked up 5th edition D&D yet. And I, I did like Rifts, which is just crazy as fuck and really confusing, <laughs> especially when you're like 14 and baked. Like, what? Like, <laughs> mega damage? Shit. So... <laughs> So, so this is our, our little bit where we, we roll up a, a character that uh, listeners can use at their whim if they want to use a character base kind of in your Alex Marshall world, I think is what we're going to shoot for today. But we'll roll up just a few stats and uh, just have some fun and, uh, and create a character that all everybody can use. So it should be fun. Yeah, right on. So we're not, we're not actually rolling anything. Uh, basically, <laughs> I'm just going to give you... Give you some uh, words, and then uh, you can ruminate as long as you'd like, or just whatever first comes to mind uh, about that particular topic. So let's reel one up with Jesse Billington. And so, first, what would you like your character's gender to be? Ah, uh, uh, you know. I just randomize everything. We can do that. Oh, we're not actually using dice though, right? Like usually, yeah, when I uh, make characters, that was one thing that I really liked about the Warhammer setting was there's like random tables for everything. So you just be like, okay, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And you end up with this like morbidly obese rat catcher. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you're going to have a really good backstory. You know that. Um, I, I guess I'll, uh, I'll play a dude just because like, as I keep killing dudes off, I'm, I'm running out of, uh, you know, dude voices. So I will make a, a male character. I think we've trended female heavy on this uh, bit before with previous authors. So yeah, I'm glad you picked a dude. So okay, so dude, the dude is it the dude? (laughs) That would be awesome if the dude was in a fantasy setting. I'm gonna write that shit like a character that is the dude in the fantasy setting. El Duderino, if you're not in the whole brevity thing. Dude, they pissed on my (laughs) chainmail. Okay, so we got a dude race. So if you want to go the fantasy route. You can do human, elf, dwarf, whatever you would like. Um, well, I don't really have a ton of um, demi-human races, but I do have like the wildborn in the star. So I'll go with that. That's basically a mutant. Like so, uh, you know, there's some. Uh, you know, I know there's a few Pathfinder D and D races that are like that. Like maybe a Typhling would be sort of an equivalency, somewhat. Hmm. The thing about the wildborn is like each one is individual. And different it's not like they all have horns so they all have tails but they're basically humans that are born with some sort of uh usually animalistic aspect or aspects okay what would your animalistic aspect be for this particular character big ass unicorn horns straight yes. <laughs> <laughs> boom uh yeah i don't know because i have this like masochistic tendency with characters where i like playing characters who are totally fucked up and horrible (laughs) like i never i never went the like shining paladin route it was always like all right i'm gonna be this punk hedge witch and uh yeah so probably um don't necessarily want to do musk lands that might be a little too real i think we could do like uh like scales, scales are always good right you know sure pour that a lot of different stuff makes you practical yeah Okay, how about age? Would you want want a young, scaly gentleman or an older, (laughs) scaly gentleman? Um, I think old. I want to be an old man covered in scales. Just inherit my (laughs) destiny right now. (laughs) Sweet. Okay, next. uh, I'm always interested in the jobs that your characters have. For example, like a weaponsmith or 
uh, artist slash mercenary. I kind of like that uh, approach to jobs. But you can choose a job for your character or the typical uh, class, fighter, wizard, etc., etc. Okay. Yeah, that's always a good Yeah, because you've got this whole career path. <laughs> um, old, old scaly mutant. That's a... Uh... Well, I think one thing I've focused pretty heavily in the narratives as well are characters that are very martial oriented. So I should probably move away from that. Yeah, you know what? I'd probably go with uh, I don't necessarily, at least in the current narrative, have too many of the other faiths of the star represented. So I'd probably do a monk or cleric of a, a different faith than the, the burnished chain. Maybe um, one of the... Uh, the ten true gods of true down in Uspa. So I'd be an old scaly priest. <laughs> what weapon would this old scaly priest possess or use? Yeah, that's a good question too. You need something something scaly. <laughs> <laughs> Just a big uh, scale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could have like a mason chain sort of uh, you know warning star thing, but like you know a literal scale. But uh, you know. Yeah, it's hard to fuck with the classics, man. Maybe just a staff, yeah. right? Come with the staff. Yeah. Cool. And then any armor. Well, I figure it's hot, hot down in Uspa, and I've got my scales. Let's say that you know, over years they've been hardened in the sun and blessed by the divine, so that they're mm. uh, nice and jagged. They're not like nice, smooth dragon scales, but just kind of like a horn toad sort of thing. Yeah, mm. uh, horny old toad of a priest. Is it weird I'm imagining this guy just naked? Naked, <laughs> naked, oh, yeah. scaled guy. Naked, scaled guy. That's it, man. He's always <laughs> meditating out on rocks. It's like, oh yeah, no, that's Father Creeper. You don't, you don't talk to him. <laughs> okay, what would be some of this character's life goals? We're assuming he's towards the end of his life, but enlightenment, obviously, first and foremost. <laughs> but you know, the ten true gods of true have their own different interpretations of what that might mean. So I think uh, part of the reason why the British chain has done so well in the Crimson Empire and spreading into the other arms is there's a heavy proselytizing element where the 10 true gods of true and Uspa are a lot less concerned with that and are more aesthetic and looking to find enlightenment on their own terms. So I think our old horny weird guy would definitely have goals of going longer and longer without eating or drinking and sort of like fading away back into the desert where he's spent all of his life, which isn't necessarily the most dramatic goal. So I can add something else on there. Let's see. Uh, maybe a youthful indiscretion led to some sort of a bastard that he'd like to reconnect with. Sometimes you're a dude who lays eggs, so uh, still trying to find out if any of those eggs hatched and if he's got any young ones running around out there. Quest for the Bastard. <laughs> nice. And uh, this is a question I asked early in one of our earlier podcasts. Uh, I always like to ask people this. Favorite curse word. What would the what would the character's favorite curse word be? Or would he not be a clean, horny gentleman? <laughs> <laughs> clean, horny. <laughs> oh, that's a really good one. Personal favorite curse word. I imagine someone that's all horny and has a big staff... <laughs> that he likes to like strike people on the forehead with when they're being foolish probably call people fuckwits it's not the most original nice. but I like it you fuckwit <laughs> don't touch my scale fuckwit exactly <laughs> okay and then finally this wonderful character's name what would his name be 
We can have a placeholder name. Mm. Kind of like old horny, old horny dude. Kind of. <laughs> <you know. laughs> Uh, Father Bumps. Cool. <laughs> Father Bumps. Wonderful. We rolled it up. Woo. Yeah. Hell yeah. I like this character. Naked, scaled dude. Hanging out. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall, sadly, we have come to the conclusion of this edition of the Grim Tidings podcast, but we wanted to at least double check and see if you have any con appearances coming up shortly. Uh, yeah, I'm actually going to be at the HP Lovecraft Film Fest and Cthulhu Con in Portland, second weekend in October. And it uh, should be a blast. It's not just a film festival. It's also a lot of literary stuff going on. And it's really cool. It's um, I've been once before and had a really good time. And I'm a guest again this year. So I'll be there. I'll be doing a reading, panels, etc. And then as far as social media goes, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, where, where are you most accessible if fans want to interact with you? I'm mostly, mostly still just on Friendster. Nobody's there anymore. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I got, I got a Facebook. I don't actually do the Twitter thing. I uh, I tried just a total Luddite. So one of these days, oh. I, I actually set one up for Alex Marshall, thinking like, well, maybe maybe as Alex Marshall, I could tweet. And it's like, no, I'm right. still shitty at it. Uh, no, but yeah, that would no, be I'm good, not- though. Be Alex Marshall on Twitter and just tweet out fucking crazy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, oh, that's not me. Yeah, <laughs> I've got some of them. Yeah, but no, I'm on Facebook, and you know, people are welcome to friend me on there. I'm always happy to talk to random strangers and offend them and be weird. But that's the thing is I just, I don't, I don't have like a professional Facebook page. It's just my Facebook page and I tend to just do whatever the hell I want. So, but everyone, anyone's welcome to come in and find out how boring I am. So. <laughs> and you are boring on Facebook as Jesse Bullington. So yeah. if they want to find you, it's your actual birth name. That's it. Yeah. And then online at jessebullington.com. If folks want to check you out there as well. Well, the books are available on Amazon now. You can get a crown for cold silver, a blade of black steel, plenty of good stuff for folks to chomp their teeth on. Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much, Robin Phil. I really appreciate it. This has been a great time, and all the best to y'all. You can find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. Be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grimdark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Rob with the Grim Tidings Podcast here with another giveaway for a six-month digital subscription to Locus Magazine. All you have to do is email us. It's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. That's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. In the subject line, write Locus Mag Swag. And the first person through wins a six-month digital subscription to Locus Magazine, open to all ages worldwide. And to begin your own digital subscription to Locus Magazine, you can log on to locusmag.com.